Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Anthony Giovanetti. Anthony is one of the co-creators of Slay the Spire and co-founders of Megacrit Studio. Now, if you've listened to my last episode with Casey Yano, then you'll realize that he is the other co-creator and co-founder of Slay the Spire. And I thought it would be really fun to do a paired episode. So this episode does stand on its own. You do not need to listen to the other one for it to make sense. There's lots of great insights in here. We talk about the strategy for monetizing and how the release cycle for Slay the Spire was designed. We talk about burnout and the incredible amount of work that goes into making a game like this. We talked about growing a team and how you manage people beyond just you and a partner. We talk about the process of developing alcohol Algorithmically generated games and some counterintuitive insights that they learned as they were developing and playtesting and relentlessly playtesting the version of Slay the Spire that you maybe have played uh, today and the process of some of their earlier games that didn't go through such playtesting and the failures and lessons learned along the way. So there's a lot of great lessons in here. The episode stands on its own. I just thought it was really fun to dig in to both sides of this equation and kind of a rare opportunity to get the co-founders separately to take their different perspectives on the same design process and the same outcome. And then we really emphasize, you can hear how they emphasize different aspects of the process. So really fun, really interesting. It's a game that I realize now I've played easily over 400 hours of, probably over 500 hours of. So that was a very fun for me to get to dig back into the background. We talk even a little bit about some of my upcoming projects um, in the Soulforge Fusion campaign mode that's inspired in part by Slay the Spire. Uh, so lots of fun stuff here. Really enjoyed the conversation with Anthony. And we even had a little bit of follow-up afterwards about some projects we might even collaborate on. So uh, it was definitely a great conversation. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Without any further ado, here is Anthony Giovanetti. Hello and welcome. I am here with Anthony Giovanetti. Anthony, thanks for taking the time to join me today. This is a really exciting conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, so this is this is this is now going to be kind of a an interesting like part two of an episode uh, in that we got uh, Casey on uh, recently, and I really loved the conversation with him. And uh, I wanted to both get your side of the story in terms of your working relationship, the creation of Slay the Spire, and your philosophy of game design in general. And um, and uh, and I'm going to tell you all the nasty things he said about you and see how you react. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, uh, but. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so I, I told him that I had, you know, I'd played easily over a hundred hours of Slay the Spire and it became a, 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 a real passion of mine. And I was really excited about the game. And then since that I time, I checked and it's actually over 400 hours on steam that I have logged. So, um, very, very few games reach that level of addiction for me. So I just want to say thanks for the many hours of entertainment and, uh, excitement about moving the genre that I particularly love forward. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Glad you enjoyed it. So um, so, so let's, 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 you know, kind of start with the way back machine. Um, I saw in some of your, your mind kind of research that you had, uh, you know, you'd managed a, a game store, uh, while you were in college and you kind of got into, into tabletop gaming pretty early. Maybe you can tell me, walk me through a little bit of that, uh, and what that, that, what that was like and what your journey was to get, to get to doing this. Sure. So 
I started playing Magic at a really young age. Um, I think uh, this was back when Wizards of the Coast had like, uh, you know, they were actually in malls and stuff and they had physical locations. And uh, I think my grandfather took me into a store, one of the Wizards at the time, and I just bought some random cards because I thought they looked cool. And uh, from there, I got super into Magic. Um, and then once, uh, while I was... And then, you know, I got, I got into all kinds of like game store related stuff, so like Warhammer, Dungeons and Dragons, all that kind of stuff. But um, uh, when I was in college and I was doing computer science degree, um, I actually had the opportunity to uh, manage a game store while I was in college. And uh, because I knew the owner of the game store and he was looking for somebody who could run it basically for him because he he kind of wanted to be like an absentee business owner where he like wasn't there so I, I basically did everything um and during that time period i was playing like you know all kinds of board games i was always teaching board games to people i was playing a lot of deck builder games like dominion like ascension which which i played a lot of um and you know i was kind of like super into that genre um uh picking up a, a a lot you know at the time and then uh when we were in college, Casey and I, we were like, hey, uh, why don't we make games? That sounds fun. Um, so just as a amateur hobby thing, we made two simple, terrible games. Uh, we made a Flash game that was no good. <laughs> and, uh, and a little iPhone Infinite Runner game. Um, I don't know how much Casey told you about about the games that we made in college. Not 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 much detail at all. Uh, we, okay. we, really, we spent so 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 it's great, and you know I love I love digging to, you know the the games you made, the lessons you learned there, and then similarly, you know I don't I don't have I don't think I've had a lot of store owners um, and store managers on the podcast, and I think that there's actually really great lessons that come from that kind of teaching games, direct interactions that I'm sure have applied to your to your design. So uh, I'd love to get kind of insights from all those things. Okay, cool. So, um, the, we definitely learned a lot in, in making those two little amateur games. So, so the very first game we made, um, it was, it was a shoot 'em up, uh, with Ikaruga mechanics. I don't know if you know what Ikaruga is, but it's the, it's a, it's a complicated, sh uh, shoot 'em up where you're like, there's two different shield colors you can change between. And depending on your shield color, all projectiles of that color actually power you up instead of hurting you. So you're like, you're like, it's a bullet hell. You're switching between your shield type. And we thought, okay, well, we'll make a flash game and uh, we're going to take this, this core idea, except we're going to have three colors of shields and there's going to be RPG mechanics. So you would like level stuff up and there was like, there was like skills and stuff. There was like a shop that you could buy upgrades and things. And it was super complex. And then, uh, oh, and then also you could aim with the mouse to, the direction that you could fire in and usually in shoot 'em ups and in, in bullet hells like that you're like just dodging you don't really care where you're aiming so we had like we had this just insane amount of complexity and this was a flash game <laughs> and uh and and we poured like an entire summer into it and uh kind of released it without doing like really any play testing at all we were just like yeah you know th th this is cool <laughs> we, threw, we threw it out there um we did like one day of play testing with some of our friends and that was it. And uh, it, it was interesting because the reception was basically like, wow, this game is way too much. It's insanely complicated. Like, uh, you know, especially if you think about like 
people playing flash games. <laughs> like it just didn't make sense. But then some of the reviews would be like, Oh my God, I love this game. This is like the best flash game ever. It's so deep. Um, and at the time we learned a lot about playtesting and just how important it was. Like we had no idea what we were doing. We were just kind of like figuring things out. Um, and we, we learned a lot about actually, um, how important it is to like, not just, you know, just staple constantly things together and build up complexity, but you know, the importance of elegance and like cutting things and actually trying to communicate to the player, like how to play in an elegant way without overloading them and just losing like 90% of people. So this, this was our, our very first game and we learned a, learned a lot from that. And then, um, the second game that we worked on was just a simple infinite runner game on the iPhone. We had played Cannibalt at the time, um, which was a infinite running flash game. And we, we liked it. And um, at the time, I, I want to say that there weren't that many games on the iPhone yet. I mean, this was, I mean, there were obviously games. I don't want to, but like, you know, the, the app store was a lot younger back then. Um, uh, and coding on the iPhone just kind of sucked and I hated it. So, so, so we got that. It, w it wasn't very good. And then I was just like, ah, okay, well, that was fun. We did like a, a little thing. Um, and then we went and got our degrees and went off and did just like actual software development work. Um, and it wasn't until meeting up after working in software for a while that we started to do games again. And that's when we started to work on Slate the Spire. But so both of our first initial forays into game development was like super amateur, just kind of like figuring stuff out, just like, you know, there, there wasn't like, uh, we weren't like reading theory or anything. It was just like, hey, this, this sounds fun. This is cool. Let's just dive into it and see how it is. And just like um, making, I think, mistake after mistake and just not knowing what we were doing. And but we learned a lot from that. And it was, it was, uh, it's also very humbling because it's, you know, it's, it's good to make something and then have it kind of suck. And, <laughs> and then you're like, Oh yeah, okay. I, I actually like see how this process works. Like, um, and, and you know, we learned about actually like finishing something, even just finishing something bad. Uh, yeah, that's a huge accomplishment. A lot of people start things that don't ever make it actually to the, you know, even to the actual prototype, let alone a, a something you release, right? People, many, everybody comes to me with, oh, I got a great game idea. I'm like, okay, cool. That's worth very little. <laughs> it's very yeah. little. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I tell people nowadays that, um, because, you know, I have so many friends who are like, oh, I want to do game design or whatever. And it's kind of like, um, I liken it to um, my parents' generation where it felt like everybody's dad had a book in them. They're like, oh, I got a great book idea in me. And, you know, yeah. they never started, of course, or maybe they write a page and then that's it. And it's like the same thing with games for most people where it, it, it's that exact same avenue where it's like, I, I like the idea of having made a game, but actually doing it is like, nah. <laughs> right, but, right. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we, we actually were like grounded out and, uh, you, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I I don't think we had any like illusions about making any money at the time. Like like I said, it was just some something we were doing in college for fun. But uh, still, it was like we were working on it. Like every day, I would I would drive over to his house and I would, I would 
stay over there till super late. And like, I killed an entire summer or summer in college on that. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so just, just like poured myself into it. Um, I've, I've killed summers in college on way stupider things. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, so yeah, so, so there's, there's, there's great lessons in there. Some of them are, you know, pretty straightforward and been echoed by, by most designers, um, on the podcast yeah. of like, you know, look, don't, you know, the, the, the default assumption is that people want to make things more complex and add more stuff together. And probably that's not the right call. Uh, often you want to be able to subtract things you actually need to get play test and feedback and iterate as quickly as possible. Um, uh, and, and I think the, um, but I'm, I'm interested in like, what is it that kind of do you think drove you to do that, to have that level of work ethic to do the work, right? Because a lot, of, again, a lot of people say they love a game. I love games. They want to make a game design and they kind of, maybe they start on the path. Maybe they have asset for a little bit. Maybe they program a little bit. You know, what, what do you think drove you and what, what helped you to actually get to completion the way you did? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I kind of feel like the, the honest answer to this is going to be kind of, uh, maybe un, uninteresting or uncompelling, but it's like, if I'm not like working on something that I feel like I can be productive on, I kind of get like antsy and I don't like it. Like mm -hmm. I really like to just actually like, something about my psychology is just, if I'm like actually like getting into the weeds and getting into the work, it's just incredibly fulfilling. And I just, right. I, I actually, um, I actually like that significantly more than doing almost any other activity. So, so, uh, I'm just kind of lucky, I guess, I, yeah. which doesn't feel great, but it's, it's just probably the part of me that likes to obsess over games, right? Like I, um, I was always super into getting, when I got into games, I would be very competitive with it. So I'm familiar um, with this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were like a pro magic player, right? So yeah. yeah. Uh, but like when I was in high school, I got really into guild wars, which is just an MMO, but and I was on one of the top guilds in the world on their like top competitive team. And, you know, I was just, I would go home from school and I would just like play that religiously. And it's, it's just like the obsessiveness, the desire to like tunnel and like go super deep. And yeah. honestly, if like, if you just don't have it, I don't know that there's a good like hack to fix that. It's just like, it's just something I've kind of always had. And yeah. Uh. Yeah. I think, I think there, I think there are certain things for, for most people where if they find that um, the way I like to phrase it is um, something that's easy for you. That's hard for other people, right? Something that like for you feels like this is not a problem. This doesn't even bother me. And so, so, so for people, I think that the hack that I recommend is just like looking for that thing. Like it doesn't, you may not even notice it a lot of times because you're just, it's just easy for you. You just, you like doing it. It's not a problem. And, but when you start to notice other people really, really complain about it, or they look at you funny when you say that you love this, um, that's a great sign that this is something because, because you have to find the thing that for whatever, for your psychology or combination of traits is the thing you can just grind on because the grind is a key part of getting to wherever you're going to get to, whether it's game design or anything else. I think that, that, that where it doesn't mm -hmm. feel like quite as much of a grind for you, um, as it does for other people that like is a superpower in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I think that's key. It, and, and, uh, calling it a grind, I think is, is, uh, is very useful because because it really is like actually doing like the, that even just that last 10% is just, it's just so oh, much. The last ten percent takes ninety percent yeah. of the time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, like, this is, a, this is a classic thing, but it's it's so true. It's just, yeah. uh, it, it's it just is. a tough. 
but. yeah well we'll get into uh maybe we'll get into some of the stuff that i'm because I, I can be a little bit more open about the thing i'm in the last 10 percent on right now than, than i think <laughs> you are but um but uh it's it's it, it'll be fun discussions um so i don't want to lose the thread of the other thing i asked which is the about your game. yeah the board game and running a game store and things you learn from trying to teach games to people because i think this is so important and i think it, it comes through in the ethos of your of, of slay the spire it's the only game years i played but you know this this like real paying attention to like how you learn the material and what how information is presented to you um and so i, I feel like there's going to be some lessons here so is there anything that comes to mind or a story that comes to mind in terms of like where you realize you know certain types of games work or don't or what makes them work or don't um i don't know if there's like a specific story but it was it was incredibly useful just because I would have to explain games to people over and over and over again. And then like in, in doing so you like pick up little things. You're like, okay, well I can leave this out. This is too much. Like, you know, we'll, we'll start here. You you kind of just start to like holistically build up a, like, like an internal model of, of how you should communicate things to people. And I think it was, it was good for just teaching me how to like model um, how much complexity people can handle at once. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it, it's not like it was a, a specific like insight, like here's the sentence that describes how to do it so much as like, it was a skill that I picked up and was like, just forced to learn and get right. good at. Um, and be, because if you don't, like, you, you don't want to be sit there and you're like, just reading the rule book to people and like, nothing's happening. And at the end you like, didn't even sell the game as a result or whatever, or you'd like, you know, ran a super terrible demo. So, um, it's just the, the big, the big skill though, like, um, kind of generalizing it is I think being able to just like model other people and model people, um, model people's like uncertainty and, and fit and like see the inferential gaps. So like that, that's like the, the big insight and especially as a game designer, right? When you throw people down in front of your game and you see them just like obviously, you know, miss the thing that's super obvious to you, right? Basically all that's happening there is there's a giant inferential gap between you and you've got to figure out how to like cross that chasm. And um, that's what we spent with Slay the Spire when we would go and we would do play tests. A lot of times we would just sit there and we would, we would watch like a single moment where they miss something and we would like write that down and circle it. And then we go back and then we would just spend tons of time figuring out, okay, well, how can we tweak the VFX to like, you know, just slightly communicate this more or what, what can we do to like, you know, slightly enhance this so that we're not losing people. And so they don't have to turn back and like, ask me a question because if, you know, whenever that happens, you failed. Right. So. You failed. Yeah, that's great. So you, so you'll do, you would do in-person testing and kind of sit silently behind them and <laughs> write on your clipboard and uh, note, note where they're, where they're messing up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so but we did a lot of all kinds of play testing. That was one of them in particular, what we would do, uh, we try to make use of of local indie events, like because there's a lot of like uh, Seattle indie indie game dev scene events, and we would try to go to those, and we would we would show like early versions of our game to people, and that was incredibly useful to just get people out of our bubble, right? Like get people mm-hmm. who have just huge range of of uh, game experiences, and then whenever we did that, that was an opportunity to do live testing and do a thing with the clipboards. Uh, we also did lots and lots of testing over um, Discord. Although at the time we were using like I think Skype and Slack and stuff too. But, but you know, uh, same but, like, concept, yeah. Social yeah, exactly. social channels, whatever. Yeah, private and, social channels. 
Yeah. And we were fortunate in this regard because um, I was really big in the Netrunner scene. Um, I was like friends with the world champion of that for multiple years. Um, and I, I actually ran the biggest Netrunner site. Um, so I was able to get like all the good Netrunner players to come in and play our game early and provide a lot of good feedback. So, yeah, that's awesome. So, so, you know, then again, these are like, these are great repeatable steps that anybody can do, right? Going to conventions and game jams, finding communities that you already are a part of and connected to and finding people in those communities that you can do tests with. There's no fancy, you know, materials required. This is all either free software or just literally standing behind somebody, right? These are just like super accessible tools. That sounds like you, you know, you learned the lesson from your, your first game. That's like, Nope, we've got to yeah. do lots of playtesting iteration. Focusing on the, the first time user experience is the most important thing. Like get people to the place where they can actually enjoy it. And then, okay, obviously you've got to make a game that has like, you know, enough depth to keep them around. But like, if they can't get past that first, you know, interaction, then the rest of your time is, is kind of wasted. Is that, that, an accurate kind of summary. Yeah, I, I, I say it's an accurate summary. And then I, I would just want to emphasize that like, it's kind of a, I, I want to say it's like the obvious advice you hear a lot now. It's like, yeah, you got to play test early and often, but I, I think it's even more than that. It's like, you want to play test more than you think you need to like hmm. whatever someone's intuition about how much you need to play test is even after hearing that feedback, it's like actually still insufficient and you need to, you need, to, at least my perspective is you need to play test till you're like absolutely sick of it and you hate it. And you're like, I've already seen this like 10,000 times. Uh, that, that was kind of my perspective is, um, we need to test so much that actually we've just absolutely like mined the insights that we can get, or at least like all of the low hanging fruit of it. So. Yeah, so let's 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 dig into that a little bit because I I think the the you know more than you need to uh, is 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 I think <laughs> almost certainly right for ninety nine percent of our audience or more um and and but let's let's get granular right so I know um, from talking to Casey that you guys would do like weekly build reviews where you know you guys would play through it yourselves and take the notes and one person would play and you know everybody would would balance the notes you would do these kinds of play tests with external parties how often how long you know, how much did you do that? Or how do you know if it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be just the specifics of with Slay the Spire, but how do you know when enough is enough? Is it just you're sick of it? You can't handle it anymore? I can't look at one more goddamn playtest report? <laughs> I, I, I mean, okay, so honestly, part of why we launched into early access is we were just like, okay, like, you know, uh, it, 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 had, it had been enough that we're like, okay, we're, we're ready for the next level. And we just can't even think about doing this anymore. Like it had been two and mm -hmm. a half years. Um, and we had reached that level of saturation, but the other thing is, um, we had, con you know, we had a, a big amount of play testers who were playing it continuously, like actually just wanting to play on their own. We didn't, we didn't schedule things. We just give them builds they could play. And then we would, um, I've given a, a talk at GDC about this, but we would like collect metrics on it and, uh, for, for balancing purposes, but uh, we were we were getting so much constant data from people that like if if I would just wait a week, I mean I would have you you know we'd have our play testers who have played countless games by then. So um, it really was just a constant amount. And then to 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 kind of think about is it good enough? Is it, is it was like I have to one. The, at the very least, I have to feel like holistically to me, my own impressions are that this feels right. That when I mm -hmm. go and I play the game, I can think, okay, this is feeling pretty good now. Has it at least crossed that bar? And then is the feedback we're getting from people positive? Is there still stuff that we're getting where it's like, 
okay, well, this is like a thing that we need to fix or not. Or is it all like we're getting to little minutia, like, okay, maybe we're getting to like pretty rare bugs, things like that, you know, we're getting to like more really subjective kind of balanced things where it's like, maybe we get some people disagreeing about stuff. Um, there's, there's different, like, there's different levels, right? There, there's the kind of thing where, you know, sometimes like a, a game will release a, release a balance patch or something. And then it's like pretty obvious that something's broken and like the meta will like converge on that very quickly or something it, it, that can be very different than, than a, a game where a patch is released. And actually, you know, it takes a while to kind of find the broken things. And um, there, there's like disagreement and things like that. There's, there's kind of just a, you have to use your judgment on it. And uh, this is where I think just luckily we had pretty good judgment, but there wasn't like a, a hard line in the sand. It's just, you kind of got to be living and breathing it enough to where you can trust your judgment. And hopefully you have good judgment because um, if you don't, I don't, I don't know what a good way to fix that. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, in my, in my experience, you know, it's, it's, it just, it comes down to doing the reps, right? Like you're going to have, you know, you, when your judgment, your judgment is, is often wrong and bad when you start and then you watch players play and you, or you teach players other games and you watch them with the different mindset, not just the player's mindset, but you know, a designer's mindset of looking for those reactions, seeing where they drop off, seeing what things are happening. That's super helpful. And then on the kind of development game, game development balance side, that's a different set of skills that, yeah, you, you either, you know, you either are a good enough player and instincts to, to get there, or you've got to just rely on data from other people that are to, to help get you there, I think. But yeah, um, yeah, that makes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it was like, and then maybe some of this is for you too. Like I came at this from a, you know, as a originally, you know, kind of pro player, like, you know, kind of very competitive gamer. So it, it came naturally to me to like balance things and know where things were broken. But, um, I actually ended up going way too far in the other direction where I made the first game I released under, it was a, you know, a set I worked on for the versus system trading card game. Like it was so balanced that it was boring, right? Like it was just like, uh, there was no, nothing was, nothing was, you know, like people don't realize that like balance does not mean everything is equal. Balance just means it's not just like one dominant thing you should do every time. Right. It's the, mm -hmm. you want people to have this variety of experience and it's actually a key to what makes Slay the Spire so engaging, right? Is that, you know, you sometimes you just have these runs where just everything's just working out and you get the right combination of things. You're just like, this is amazing. And then other times where you're struggling and it's, you know, that, that back and forth is, is part of the, part of the fun of it um, for yep. any of these kinds of games. Um, so um, I want to, I want to dig into kind of the, you know, more of the launch. Um, I heard some of the stories uh, from Casey, but they, you know, originally the, you, you approached him with the idea for the first Slay the Spire, right? Okay. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So basically at the time I was working at a software job that wasn't too engaging. Um, <laughs> it was, it was the kind of job where you do a lot of like, you know, Redditing and other things at the job. You know, you know it's like, there's a lot of idle time. So I was like, you know, thinking about game design a lot. Uh, and I, I, at one point for whatever reason I was bored one day, I just start to like make a game design document. Um, I'm just, you know, could never, could never get the itch out of my system. So I, I, I had just been, I started noodling on this for a while and then I, I just kept like slowly developing this document. And then eventually when I met up with Casey, cause actually while we were working in software, we, we didn't interact too much, uh, very rarely. Um, you know, we had kind of grown apart after college, but we met up again and we started hanging out again. And he was like, Hey, 
I'm planning on leaving my job and doing games again. Uh, you know, and I was like, you know, that sounds actually really fun. <laughs> uh, I have an idea. Uh, you know, we can try it. And and he's like, oh, you know, this doesn't look too hard. We can, <laughs> so you know, this probably won't be too big of a game. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then so we just started with that because why not? I already had a, a design doc ready to go. Um, and then Casey made the initial prototype. He did it super fast. I want to say it was within a week he had a prototype. Might even be faster than that. We had like a super basic prototype um, that just had some of the initial ideas in there. And then we took that to like a local um, indie event and then we showed it to some people and already they were like, oh yeah, okay, I can see how this works. I, I you know, th this makes sense to me. This is kind of cool. And so we had some initial promise and we were like, okay, yeah, well, let's let's keep developing on it. And then um, it just kind of snowballed where we kept going, you know, as we put more time into it, uh, we kept getting positive feedback. So yeah, yeah. So it's it's a great um, thing to yeah get to be able to rapidly prototype and, and move that ball forward. I'm I'm interested. You know, I know there was in part a um, you know you 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 were sick of it and you ran out of time and you had the good data ready to launch, but you the the strategy for how to launch the game and the vision for it. Um, you know, these kinds of games could easily have been you know could have been built as a free-to-play model there is clearly could have been oh, expansions yeah. there's like you know instead you kind of launched it i think i forget if you launched it with one character or two characters um we uh, we launched with two characters uh, yeah. just the anchor and the silent um and then the plan the plan oh so actually yeah i, I can't talk about this part of what inspired how we launched in early access and everything was dead cells we had been watching how dead cells was doing their early access and we thought Wow, this model looks really good. It's a great way to keep developing the game, improving it. Um, pretty sure our game would do great in this kind of a model. Um, this looks really player friendly, actually. And um, it seemed like the kind of constant updates is actually was actually just a really good boon for keeping players engaged with the game. Um, and so that was that was that was part of why we were like, okay, this seems like the model for us. So. Um, and so then we, we, we yeah, just flesh, flesh, and 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 so so this is basically not just like having a kind of fixed purchase price for the upfront for the game and having a pre-planned roadmap where you're like every week or two you're putting up new content and engaging or you know regularly mm -hmm. adding new things that people can engage with, right? That's the the, the gist of it. Yeah, and although because we're insane, uh, during early access we did weekly updates the entire time, <laughs> which which was which was nutty, uh, but. Um, which I was only, we were only able to do because we had no life during that time. But, <laughs> uh, um, but, but yeah. And then part, part of it, honestly, the, the truth is that like a free to play model never was even on the table. Um, mainly just because I don't like free to play. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, just, just as, as a player, I don't like free to play. So um, I was just more interested in something that, and well, and also uh, to be honest, I didn't think that Silas Power was going to blow up to the level that it did. Right, like to do free to play and actually monetize it, you have to have a lot of players. Our, our yes. thinking at the time was like, it, I think if we had assumed the level of success that Silas Power got, we would have we would have had to be pretty delusional or at least very like very cocky because I you know I I was assuming like okay we we would run like projected numbers and things and I I remember being like okay this is how many copies I need to sell to just make up for leaving my software job. That would be really great if we could hit that, you know? And, and, uh, and then 
I didn't expect Slay the Spire to become kind of the phenomena that it has become. Um, so it's it's very it was very weird like experiencing that happen as time went on. Um, but we didn't like account for that in our planning. Uh, it was we were never like oh we're gonna make you know we're gonna like basically put this genre on Steam. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you never think that. I mean, I honestly, like I, yeah, same. It's just, you know, my first Ascension, when I released Ascension, it was like, I was making that for me and my friends. I did not ever anticipate yeah. that it would become like this, <laughs> what it became. And so it's a, you can't, you just can't know, right? Nobody, you can't. If, yeah, if you, if you, exactly. I made the kind of game I wanted to play. You know, right. and that, that was just my goal. I was like, it was more of a artistic kind of thing, I guess, or yeah, you know, just, just making the creative thing I want. It wasn't some crazy informed business decision. Um, I'm sure that we could have monetized it way better, but yeah, whatever. Well, but so then, then let's, you know, let's talk through the, 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 the back end of it. Cause I understand making those decisions up front. And I, I think first of all, making the thing that you actually want to play is just the best metric I found for for success in general. Every time I've done that, it's succeeded beyond my expectations. And every time I've tried to make what I think the market wants or whatever, like it's gotten terrible. So, um, I, but, um, you know, once you, you know, when I, I was on my back foot because I didn't expect the success that it had. But once Ascension was a success, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make more of that. I'm going to make expansions <laughs> and I've done it for 15, 13 years now. And I've got, to, uh-huh. um, so, so what, why what what stopped you from going down that road right he's like oh well sure you can make more characters you can make more you know different types of uh, encounters like this is an infinite well that you've you could have been been mining or um it's true and i mean it's interesting because we have actually had a, a lot of people be like you know oh my god i would like i want more content so bad like please make more characters you know like begging us to do it but um it's kind of a complicated answer to this one, but honestly, uh, just a big part of it is we were very burnt out, you know, at, at the end of, so we did two and a half years into before we launched under the access and we launched into the access. Um, and those were not 40 hour work weeks during those two and a half years. Uh, and then in early access, we were doing weekly updates and those were not 40 hour work weeks either. And, and so at some point, you know, like the actual, like physical and mental toll was just too much and we just needed a break. I mean, that's, that's the honest answer. Um, we, we needed a break and like creatively, we kind of just wanted to like take a step back uh, do some little like game jam level stuff, like just experiments, like work on something that wasn't Slay the Spire, right? Because um, at least for me, I was just like feeling pretty dead and and like done. Um, I totally get it. I totally get it. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely have had to, I, I, I like working on a bunch of different projects at the same time to help me if I get too burned out on one, I, I just, I shift gears and move to another one. Um, but do you have different practices now that you've learned to, not get to that level of burnout or you just don't work as many hours a week or, or is it just eh, whatever it happens, happens. Yeah. I mean, uh, so part of it is I just don't work that like that way anymore. Um, you, you know, I, I've kind of joked with someone before that, like, Oh, I'm just like less hungry now. Like, and, you know, I'm, I'm fine working a 40 hour work week instead of like an 80 plus hour work week. This is, sure. <laughs> this is I, 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 I'm fine with that. This is, this is good. And, um, maybe part of that is just me getting older, but, um, the, you know, it was almost like you're just in this like frantic, almost manic pace and the kind of momentum just carry carries you forward. And that's how I felt about it. And now 
Like, but once I broke the momentum, you know, I was like, okay, I can just be comfortable and enjoy life while still, you know, still actually doing a lot of creative work. But um, I think just actually taking the time to enjoy myself and slow down actually helps to keep things more balanced anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, and and that I think that there's like there's you know different skills, different phases of life, and where you are in your you know you know I, I think that y- this is a, an advantage of being young. I mean, even just like thinking back to the the magic and card playing days, I mean, I would just play all the damn time. I had sleep. I don't care. I sleep in the floor of somebody's hotel room to go to a convention. I just <laughs> does, who cares? Like it doesn't matter. Drive four hours to get to this magic event, play it for twelve hours, and drive four hours back. Yeah, of course, obviously I'm going to do that, right? You know, just there's just a different thing. Yeah, I can't no, even imagine doing that now. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. that reminds me of like going to pre-releases and like doing stuff all day all night and then i would remember back back then like i'd go to denny's after the pre-release yes, with my friends yes. and we'd like draft <laughs> and stuff and but it's like the idea of doing that now is just insane to me it's like yes. i used to do land parties and i would just not sleep and i would just play game now i'm like nah i need to sleep all right yep. <laughs> like yeah. uh, so so you know it's just Things yeah. have changed and that's just where I'm at. So, yeah. And you know, as you get older, you get, you get a bigger, broader insight, your instincts get better, your ability to do make creative leaps, I think gets, gets, gets better in some degree. And then, and there's, you know, but yeah, you don't have that same, you know, manic, uh, level of drive <laughs> and energy. So it's, it's just, I, I've been trying to be very conscious of that. And it's also, I've made a point to hire really talented uh, youngsters that are happy to, to have that drive to help me out. <laughs> that, that, that is the other thing you know we've we've grown our team you know it was uh we, we actually have like 10-ish people now so um so we're still small but yeah having having actual like you know full-time employees is nice so well and 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 so then yeah i'd love to to hear hear about that transition some too right because it was a big deal for me so you know just to share my side of it right yeah started with just you know me working on my own or you know first working for other people then working on my own and slowly having a, a small team and then uh transitioning from the it's just you or you and a buddy working on something to okay no we have employees we have overhead we have all the mm-hmm. stuff it changes the equation a lot um how do you think about that how do you feel like you've managed it so far and uh and maybe maybe i know you're you haven't you know launched a new thing yet so you can't necessarily know for sure but it's actually a great time uh-huh. to give these kinds of answers because you know it's easy when you're in retrospect and you're whether you succeed or not to tell a story it's it's, it's more fun to hear the story <laughs> in the, in the thick of it yeah, I can I can see how my prediction was uh, in the future. Um, yeah, it's actually something I've thought about a lot. Uh, it which is which is interesting because like just if you had asked younger Anthony, oh, do you think you're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about like hiring and like uh, you know just managing people and all of that and how your processes are put in place, I would have been like nah, man, like, what are you talking about? But, uh, but I, I do spend a lot of time on that and it, 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 it's been an interesting transition overall. I would say I've done it. Okay. I think, I think we've been okay, but not great, which of course makes sense because like managing people, managing a company, these are like orthogonal skills to game design. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you can do all the game design in the world, but that, and then you have to like go learn a whole new skill, which is like how to actually do all of that stuff. Um, you know, and just like interfacing with everything, like you know, all the tax stuff and it just, Oh just, yeah. Super fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like look, looking at how to do healthcare in like different States for different people. So say, so, you know, just there's uh it's, it's a whole different process and luckily for, and also just hiring is incredibly different. 
people. Um, there, you know, I don't, I, I don't think anyone has really figured out how to do hiring well. Like interviewing is very, very difficult. It's like very hit or miss, uh, very easy to mess up, I think. And it's the kind of thing where just like with game design, I feel like we slowly get better. We, we sometimes make mistakes. We learn lessons. We slowly move forward. And I've been building these skills, but um, it, it's the, the one unfortunate thing is it does like, in, in, you know, it takes away from the amount of time you can like just do game design or just do like the fun stuff. Cause it's not fun. It's not like glamorous. It's just kind of the, the nitty gritty that you just have to practically do or you yeah know, yeah the the bigger your team gets the less time you get to spend doing the thing that you started loving doing right there's uh is is just yes. a reality <laughs> um and so i've 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 lived that uh for sure and uh it's actually you actually end up on the other side where you have to have to protect actively protect your design time and your your work time uh that um you know, because it, it can easily get consumed by just that sort of management and logistics and everything that comes from it so um yeah, it's a mm -hmm. it's if if you told me you were getting it perfect, I would uh, I would call you a liar. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely not. I I I think I think right now um, I'm I'm happy with things are at, but it, you know it's been a process to get here. So and uh, and we'll, we'll we'll see how it actually goes when we release our game. But, yeah, uh, I, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been full of lessons. We'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any um, any particular lessons that come to mind or uh, or amusing shifts that you would want to share in terms of, uh, oh, wow, I got to really actually think about this this way now um, that uh, that might be helpful to somebody in our audience? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. So. I, I don't know, I would say. I, I don't know if there's any like particular thing. It's mainly just like, man, hiring is so hard. <laughs> and, and like, um, it, if I could have done it again, I would have almost, I, th I think a thing that I should have done would have been to actually just spend some time like doing more research, like talking to more people kind of who have gone through the things that I've had to deal now and like learn some lessons so that, I wouldn't have to, or so, so maybe I could have just started in a better spot. Um, yeah, but but it's 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 been good that we went slow. At least I think it would have been it could have been disastrous if we like just ran headfirst in anything and we like scaled right up to fifty people, um, and then like ended up in a huge amount of like technical debt or something. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're, and you're going to, you're going to hit a new crossroads too. If you go above, like I, th I found in my experience, like going above like 10 to 12, like with, with anywhere in like eight to 12 range, you could, you pretty much can know what everybody's doing. You could kind of manage like person to person. And, and it, it, but once you start getting above that, you really can't. And like your kind of metrics and systems managements have to get better. Like it's, it's a, you may already be there or in that process, but I, that's what I found. I hit a wall the first time I kind of crossed that threshold. I wasn't ready uh, and made a lot of mistakes. Um, so, so going slow and, and, is very valuable. <laughs> in, in fact, that's actually good. Cause that's actually where, you know, right where we are. And, and uh, I think Casey and I have decided that we need to, we're like, okay, we're, we're good for now because I, I yeah. can already see that that's like, we're, we're on like the edge of that. Um, yep. And what, what's interesting is just how much now I, I ask people or like I become interested or ask people who have like, if I find someone and they're like, oh, I have a bunch of experience hiring people. I'm always like, oh, well, you know, hey, like, <laughs> do you have anything interesting to tell me? Uh, 
but I, I still consider myself a noob at this and I'm just like trying to assemble the heuristics in my head to make it work. So, yeah. Yeah. I find interviewing to be very minimal value in general. Like it's just a very tough thing to do. Right. And I don't know how I'm going to be with somebody till I start working with them. So usually if I, if it's at all possible, I try to like get a three month contract with somebody or do some work with somebody before I like hire them full-time because that tells you very quickly, are they good at their job? Are they mm-hmm. good to work with? Are they doing things? Cause anybody can sound really good for like an hour, you know, like an interview, like people can, people can pull that off for sure. And, and also many talented people don't sound good for an hour, right? They don't do well in interviews. Um, and so there's a, there's a, you know, whenever possible, it's not always the case, but whenever possible, I try to just be like, okay, pass the minimal kind of smell tests. And then let's just try working together and see how it goes. Um, and then, uh, we learn a lot. It's always why part of why I advise other people to like, you know, you can get, you know, work for free, work for cheap, do internships, get, get, get experience, get interactions with people. Um, because you'll opportunities show up from that, like all the time and you learn a ton, uh, when you're on the other side of the equation. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that sounds really good. I, I know people who do that and it makes sense to me. All right, let's uh, let's shift back into game design uh, and fun chats here because the um, uh, you know some of our audiences may be interested in this phase of hiring, but uh, it's a, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah. narrower a narrower group. I'm I'm always interested in this stuff because you know it's just the creative process is not just about an individual being creative or you know you and a buddy working together. It's really like you know you want to create things at scale. It requires you to be able to enroll and work with other people, and the the, the more you can do there, the the more. Um, creative opportunities are open to you right um, and so it's a, it's a worthwhile thing but um you know designing uh and balancing slay the spire is just a was a fascinating uh so it's it just you you did a really phenomenal job with it and uh, you know again I, I see a million of these games and i've seen a million knockoffs you know since you guys have kind of got this genre ball rolling um that very few execute at the same tier most are terrible uh, but that's the <laughs> case um so what how did you think about you know building you know, a, an experience like this, where it's this, you know, finite run and the process for creating the card pool and the process for kind of creating the sort of drop rates and strategies, like what, 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 walk me through that, you know, I know a lot of iteration and testing went through, but walk me through that process a little bit and I'd love to, to dig deeper there. Sure. So I think, so starting at like a, a high level, um, part of, what I think the core design of, of Slay the Spire is, is like risk versus reward. And the, the like basic idea behind the game is just, we want to have it where you're constantly presented opportunities where you can push your luck. And if you push your luck and it goes well, you can get stronger and try to like, you know, get extra synergies, build snowballs. And then we, we give the, we give the, availability to the player to totally pop off, get that like disgusted, broken feeling where everything's going good. And if, if we can get things right, our goal is that those are hard to get to and rare, you know, less rare for better players, but, and they're rare, but achievable. And like, it's that, that risk reward and pushing your luck um, that we kind of like wanted to bake into everything. Um, So, my my goal was to make it so that there would be different layers of decisions that you could make and those would work together so that you could constantly be making like super meaningful interesting decisions pushing you in a direction and um and then i ideally the big thing is that you wouldn't just like always pick 
the strictly best thing for all scenarios, but a guiding principle was that we want things to be good sometimes, not good other times, and that uh, it would be very context dependent because I uh, I think card games work best if the if the like the space of deck building decisions is such that you at least have to like think about the decisions you're making and it's not just, okay, this is always correct. This is always like the obvious thing. And that, those were like kind of like guiding high level principles behind stuff. Um, as we started to dig into it, um, other, other things came about, like we were kind of had strong opinions on presenting information to the player and, um, being clear about randomness. So for example, in our, uh, generally like in our events will like tell you the outcome of a choice uh that kind of came about because i've played a lot of games where you get to something like that event screen and say the spire and it's like well here's some lore and here's some lore make a choice and i i hate those i've always hated that as a player because i either do one of two things i either just go like okay random whatever or i go and i wiki it Cause I'm that kind of person and right. I, I hate having to do that. So um, a lot of things um, were kind of influenced like that. Like what are the, what are things that I hate as a player and then how, how can I fix it? Um, and then, and then it was all based around kind of the risk reward uh, was like, like the driving vision. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and of course having the, the decisions be, you know, contextually interesting. There's a challenge that comes up, you know, with deck building games in general, right? That the, the, the value of added card to your deck diminishes over time. Mm-hmm. In fact, and often t- adding a card to your deck is net negative um, in many cases. Um, how did you think about that in terms of the, the sort of pacing and strategy around slightest, but I know that instead of a card choice, you can take a, take a coin reward instead. So you can opt out most players. That's not fun, right? Most players don't want to do that, even though it may be correct. How did you think about that, that challenge? Cause it's a, it's a, well, it's a subtle one. A lot of players don't even see, um, but it's a, well, it's well a, it's yeah, a we, we don't even give you a coin. You just, if you skip oh. enough. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, something, that's something some other games have done. They've added like yeah. a coin. We have, we have a relic that you can get stuff on the skip. Oh but, yeah, that's um, right. Um, yeah, so it's interesting because that is like one of the big unintuitive things is people having to learn that actually skipping a card here is good. And uh, I mean, honestly, I was just like, it's something that people will learn or they won't and it's okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, um, the, the, the big thing is that overall the, the, um, the length of the run is such that you can, by kind of the end of act two, a lot of people's decks are kind of done at that point. Yeah. Um, like a lot of, a lot of times you go into act three, maybe, maybe, I mean, you're not like fully done, but you're like, you're like most of the way there, your deck has like a shape, a texture. You kind of like know whatever else you're doing. It's not too many things you're looking for at that point. Um, and because we were, when we were like figuring out the game length, we kind of like noticed this happening and three acts seemed like the, the right way to do it anyway. So uh, we also had kind of a time we were looking at. So like we wanted the runs to be under an hour ideally um, because uh, roguelikes I think work best if you have a quick iteration loop. But um, in terms of like the knowing when to skip and stuff, I ju- we just assume that 
by default, most players are not going to like pick that up at first. That'll take a while. That's going to be something you learn as you play more. It becomes more obvious. Like once you start to finish your deck, you're going to hit these, these times where you're like, you know, I don't want eight of these. Players just kind of like pick that up. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, we, we don't need to do too much to encourage it. Actually. It's like a pretty emergent behavior that players can kind of get. It's not, it's not like obvious, but if they don't pick that up, it's actually not the end of the world. Like they will actually probably be okay. They can still get pretty far. They're, you know, they're not going to be the best players, but they can probably still actually win runs. And, um, so we actually have like a lot of leeway and then we can, you know, we, we can do some things like we can have that relic that rewards you for skipping cards and things like that, that can kind of give you little nudges into things that you learn. But in general, I'm actually totally okay with letting players learn like kind of higher level strats like that and not just like immediately knowing it right out the gate. I think that's fine. Yeah, so. no, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's the kinds of things where you don't, so, you know, we had the same problem with Ascension, right? Like um, banished mm -hmm. cards exist, high level players gravitate to them and realize that they're they're potentially some of the most powerful things. They love them. New players hate them. In fact, they don't even like, why would I ever want to get rid of cards? That's ridiculous. They don't even want to get rid of their starting cards, right? Like they just don't, wow. they don't get it. And so we had to, we did shift the balance of the game such that those players don't just get rolled over, right? Like we had to make the, yeah, okay. the you know, so it wasn't, um, you don't have that same problem in a sense. It's just a matter of like, what's your starting difficulty level, which um, I'd heard a story from Casey that started out way higher than it, uh, than it, than oh, it yeah, should yeah. have been. The, the, the game, yeah, the game in, in our internal beta was incredibly hard compared to what we launched. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Right. Um, so you wanted people to feel like they're making that, you know, they can make progress and, and, and do well, even without, um, without that uh, knowledge, that secret knowledge or whatever that, that they can learn. And mm -hmm. I think that that makes sense, right? So people, if, if players don't get something that's like critical to gameplay, they don't understand like what is happening, then it's a real problem. If they don't understand some high level version of strategy and don't optimize that that's not a problem until, you know, they learn that it's a problem, in which case it's no longer a problem because they've learned it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and quite frankly, like most people can get through their first uh, run of like or actually their first many runs of Slay the Spire and not need to know that they need to skip cards. Yeah. So it's fine. Um were there any other interesting design choices or shifts that um were on the cutting room floor here or the things that were, you know, pretty big or non-intuitive changes that, that ended up making the game better that come to mind? Uh the uh, the biggest thing that we've talked uh, I've mentioned to other people is the, uh, the intent system was something that wasn't in the original design doc, but we added, did Casey already talk to you about that? No, he didn't talk about it. Okay. So, um, originally, um, I, I think the intent system is like a huge part of what makes Slay the Fire work and what makes it so engaging, but it actually wasn't in the initial design doc. We didn't have it for quite a while. Uh, originally it was just like, your enemy would would just do their next move, and it was like you're it was like you're in a Final Fantasy fight or something. So you didn't know what they were going to do. And then what we found is that people kept saying like, "Oh man, this feels like really random." You'd you'd like block when the enemy wasn't going to attack, and you'd waste your block cards. Um, it, you know, you people people couldn't fully um, make meaningful choices as a result. So we were like, "Okay, well, this seems really bad. Maybe we should do something about this." Um, and then we, we tested out like a very early version of the intent system where we would, we, we had up in the top bar, we had a, a giant like UX element 
and it would say the enemy's next move. There was like a name and then like, it would just like say what they were going to do. And we tried that out. And, um, and so one, it was not good. Like it was, it was a mess, but two, it was still better than what was there before. We were like, huh, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, and then we like iterated on it until we got down to the symbols because, you know, symbols are great. They convey a lot of information, very easy. Um, and like we, as we kept going just directionally in the right way, we were like, man, this is actually amazing. Like now players can think way more about their turns. Like we lowered randomness and increased strategic complexity a lot. Like this is great. Um, so it was like this huge thing that we kind of like stumbled our way into just because we were, we were like just listening to the players and we were like, how can we solve this randomness thing? We already have so much randomness in this game. We don't need randomness here because randomness is just a tool and we had plenty of it. So, right. Yeah. Finding that balance where, yeah, the randomness is in like, what cards do you get presented with? And, but the strategy is you being able to make good decisions with the cards you have at any given moment. Yeah, exactly. So, um, great. I love it. Okay. So let's shift then to, um, to the next generation here. Right. So I, I think that we build on, uh, the games of the past, you know, you've mentioned, you obviously took the deck building genre and now added and the roguelite genre and brought it, brought those together. I think that there's, um, uh, you know, I know that your, your current project is kind of still uh, top secret, but do you have a sense of, I don't know what you're able to talk about in terms of like what's motivating you to kind of move into this next space. What is it? Uh, what is it you're driving at? Or is there anything you can say in that's in that what what's 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 changed or what's driving you to this next project? Oh man, and, I don't know. I, don't know and if I can't, I can I can't anything, answer. Right? Is okay. I we don't we don't we don't, have, yeah. we, don't we don't have to do it. All right. Oh, well, then I'll go. Yeah, right. sorry. No, it's no, totally fine. Uh, what I'll talk about is my project then, because um, my project is partially inspired by your project. Um, so, oh, okay. you know, um, so I've been working on uh, Soulforge Fusion with Richard Garfield now for, well, we worked on the original version of Soulforge over 10 years ago, um, which is a kind mm -hmm. of card game where TCG, where digital TCG, where your cards level up as you play them. We reintroduced it, it yeah. as, okay, great. So we so Soulforge Fusion, we reintroduced recently as an algorithmically generated deck game. So there's two, instead of fully customizing your deck, we give you an algorithmically generated deck and you shuffle any two decks together to play. Like Keyforge? Like Keyforge, but you can customize by shuffling your two decks together. Oh, so cool. Keyforge, okay. you're fixed, you have a fixed deck, right? You can't do anything with it. Uh -huh. And so we're building a, every deck also comes with a QR code and can be scanned to play it into a digital version of the game, which is not out yet, uh, but we will, will be coming to early access um, on Steam soon, TM. Um, okay. and, and one of the things I wanted to do was make there be a, version of the game it's not that the digital version of the game is not just like the tabletop right so you can play table like the game you can play your physical deck in the digital version you can play it against somebody else just like you would but i wanted to build a what is a you know kind of roguelike campaign mode around it and so we've been building that it's you know very much inspired by slay the spire and i had the experience i said 400 plus hours of the game where i'd you know after which i felt like i'd kind of explored pretty much all the space that was there for me and I unlocked everything and I felt like, okay, cool. And I like your many other customers, like ah, I want more stuff. Um, and so, uh, I'm building it something that's more like that in the sense that we now, instead of having it, you know, there's infinite number of possible commutations because each deck is one of a kind and you pick mm -hmm. your, your main characters and shuffle your two decks together. Um, but, and throughout the campaign, you're doing different upgrades, um, to your deck. So it's not so much you're acquiring new cards, but you're modifying the cards that already exist. And so you're able to create a custom, you know, variations and, and get the deck building experience 
And again, I brought up the issue about the challenge of adding cards to your deck because like this is the way I've tried to solve it, right? You're not adding cards to your deck. You're just adding new powers, new improvements, new, you know, relics in, in, in Slay the Spire turns, new, you know, so it's always an upgrade as you go. And then of course the bosses and enemies get harder. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it because of, you know, I said, you guys were an inspiration for it. What are your thoughts on that, uh, kind of approach or how, uh, what things come to mind in terms of maybe, uh, ideas or, or, potential pitfalls of the way that I'm approaching this new uh, genre that builds on what you've built. Okay. I mean, it sounds very interesting. It sounds like a game I would like to play. Um, I, well, actually, I, can arra- actually... I can arrange for that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You should actually, actually, uh, I still have keyboard decks. So, and I was, I was, I was hoping somebody did something with the keyforge unique deck mechanic in a digital space. Cause digital just seems like it makes more sense. Um, yeah. But, uh, Huh, it's interesting. So, um, I mean, I don't know. This is like totally shooting from the hip. I guess, I guess, uh, a potential thing could be like if the player is always guaranteed getting stronger at the end of every fight, um, do you have problems with scaling like the enemies to the player over the course of an entire run? But I could see ways of working around that. It's not like terminal. Um, and then, um, I guess the other thing would just be like, how interesting uh are you gonna make the upgrades to cards be but again this is like just content so yeah uh, um but but like uh how much like variety and design space can you do in the in the various upgrades so i'm excited i'm excited to see what it is but that's yeah. uh yeah no, yeah I'm, I'm happy to i'm happy to share it with you and of course you know the there'll be lots more details coming for the audience uh, but you know we have uh, we have uh, some alpha players now and uh we have a uh, we did a uh, we have some kickstarter backers who are going to get access um shortly um and then eventually we'll move into early access where everybody can see the game but the um I, I like to sort of whatever i love talking about the sort of stuff and and uh-huh. obviously conversations with you uh it's, it's felt appropriate um you know because there's the variety of encounters and upgrades, right? There's, there's, there's the degrees which the game is a very numbers centric kind of game. You played the original Soulforge, so you, you kind of know the the basics of it, right? So it's 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 easy to just you know give numbers increases, but they're not that interesting. And so you want to give you know either you know and the new new powers and things that change the way the game is played. Obviously, the hardest things to build, um, but also the most fun for the players. Um, and one of the things that I definitely have been wrestling with is sort of the number of variety of encounter types that need to be there, right? So you guys ended mm-hmm. up with, I think from what I heard from Casey, is that you started with a lot of different varieties of encounter types and you ended up with, you know, what, basically four or five, like regular, regular encounter battles, boss battles, uh, events, uh, rest and, uh, for, uh, merchants. Shops in the elite. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, where do you feel, uh, you, you know, obviously you kind of landed in a specific place there. Do you think that there's a, uh, there's something that you wish was in there that you didn't have that would be a cool spot that you're like, ah, this is a tough one to cut, but uh, boy, would it be sweet? Yeah, um, I mean, there, so I think the most obvious things would be like different ways of modifying your decks, like your, your deck that could be, uh, that are like, more evergreen so for example like you can imagine a card removal kind of node where you would instead of using the shop as your primary card removal source we could have like a node on the map and you go there and you get to remove a card that would be like a the kind of thing we were thinking about um you were like maybe you go to a node on the map and you get like a transform or something kind of the things that we already have as like evergreen verbs in the game 
but that could be doled out still at some regular-ish cadence. Mm. The problem that we we would run into, um, because th this is actually something, um, so in Slay the Spire, we have a map of laying out all of our nodes, and in, in like the middle-ish, there's a row of treasure. And the reason why those treasures are all together on the same row, we actually did not start that way. They used to be like randomly generated on the map like other nodes, but then map map mapping like your character up and the path you would take was trivial. What you would do is you would go, I can get the most treasures, the most relics by taking this map and through this route. And you would just always take that route. And so the the challenge is if you have like too many like rare things and those rare things are particularly good, it can it can make the whole like map seeking part of the game kind of trivial. And that was what we've found. So yeah. Yeah. So then this this ties into the separate you know, question of it, how much fun and how important is the map seeking part, right? I, I, so I've, I've, I'm, I'm somewhat inclined to obfuscate it in, in our game, right? And just like, you know, what your next choice is, you don't necessarily know what's ahead, you know, where the boss is, but that at some point you're going to end up there, but you don't necessarily map the entire, the entire journey. How do you feel about that relative to, to the kind of some more uncertainty in that path? I, I think it's like, it's a reasonable approach. I think, I think, okay, so Slay the Spire is better for the map, I think, but in particular because of the amount of rooms that you see, the map helps a lot. Um, if you have less rooms, I think it's better to not require a map. Or the, the less rooms that you see, the, um, the more value a map adds is less. So, um, like, Monster, have you played Monster Train? Yeah. Okay, so like Monster Train, get like their their solution is you just pick like left or right or up or down, I forget whatever. Yeah, but you pick one of two paths every single time. So they still have like a choice you make, and you're just making a trade off every time. And you, and you only see like ten different um, nodes, I think, all send down. There's like ten battles or so, and that's like a pretty reasonable compromise, I think. Um, but when you're seeing like all of the all. I don't think it would work as well at the scale of the amount of fights you have in Slay the Spire. So yeah. that's, that's like how I think about it. Now I could be wrong about that too, but uh, but that's like how I how I think about it is like the less choices you have, you can kind of condense and get a, get rid of some of that like um, complexity. Because like if you're if you're only having like five encounters or whatever in an entire run a big map doesn't make any sense yeah so. yeah no that's kind of that's kind of where we're landing like a game a single game of soul forge takes longer you know by a good chunk than a single game of you know single encounter and slay the spire so we have less total to keep us within that you know mm -hmm. yeah, 60 to 90 minutes is a kind of high end of yeah. what i want to run to go for um so that 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 tracks with how we're thinking about it um yeah it's just it's a super fun design process and then you know the other i guess interesting question is like you know how many you know what what level of variety of encounters i i just don't know what, what what you guys started with or how you how you paced adding them in terms of like the number of different possible events possible number of possible um encounters and then did you you know i assume you probabilistically weighted them so that some were much more rare than others but i i don't know that for sure um how did you think about those things yeah so we probably have more than is needed to be honest although uh, I, I don't know. I, I think we're on the high end when you look at like other similar games, but uh, like in, in a given act, you'll have like 10 ish different enemy encounters and then three elites and then the three bosses and then like 10 ish events for that act and then act agnostic events. But I, we, we just kind of like some of these numbers. Um, 
I, I think I was like, yeah, three elites sounds about right. Like, <laughs> like that, that's a lot of content. Um, and then we just kind of did it. I uh, honestly, it was never like we, we were like super complex in how we, uh, settled on the numbers that we settled on. I really like threes, obviously. So we have yeah. three bosses and three elites, but, um, and then yes, we do have waiting. Um, there's not a lot. So like the elites are all weighted the same. The bosses are all weighted the same, but some, uh, enemy fights are weighted differently and like events are weighted differently too. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all pretty reasonable, but, but we have like a lot of, of content, but, um, I don't know anything about your game yet, but, um, depending on the, like how the enemies look like if they're an entire, another, um, you know, deck equivalent, then they can be, then they can be less Then then you can have less variety or more. It just depends. Um, I, I, I haven't, I haven't thought about it, but I, yeah, I think yeah. the numbers we settled on were, were pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. I think having like more than that per act would have been too much because the players wouldn't be able to like reason about things as well. It's kind of nice that there's like three elites you have to worry about in an act. So you can be like, okay, I'm in act one. Can I beat the gremlin knob? And you can think about the gremlin knob specifically as like a problem for you to deal with. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's like a useful thing to have. If we had like 10 different elites or like 20 different elites, players wouldn't be able to do that. They'd be like, well, I hope I don't hit the one elite that wrecks me. Like that would suck. And then you just kind of like do your thing. But right. instead by having it be three, you can be like, okay, there's this set problem. How can I fix this problem? And then like look for solutions when you're drafting. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. And I mean, yeah, I noticed like, you know, kind of the elites and the challenges you, you sort of mentioned it this way, but I think it's worth highlighting that, you know, they are, they're designed to present specific problems or to thwart specific strategies so that the players have things to fear or play around or, you know, that, that, that becomes like, if I know the narrow approach I need to take here, um, I could fix it, but I'm not a hundred percent sure what I'm going to get, but I, you know, I think that creates a really great tension. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, we'll we'll defer further discussion on my game till I get you a get you a copy <laughs> to play. Um, but I, I just thought it was a fun, and I again I like doing this stuff out in the open, right? Because I I don't I don't know all the answers. You don't know all the answers. We've got a lot of experience with stuff. We have instincts around it. I think it's just kind of I like to share this stuff with with the audience so they can see what that process is like. Um, and as it's developing, and who knows, it may change quite a bit by the time we actually release it. That's cool. Uh, okay. So the other thing I'm interested in um, is, you know, you, we talked earlier about not making a Slay the Spire expansion and, you know, being burned out and wanting to move to the next thing. But you, you guys have kind of authorized, there's a, there is a Slay the Spire expansion that was made by the fan community, um, uh, the, I think called Downfall. Uh, and uh, I'm curious what that has been like for you and how that came about. And it's really cool to see fans making mods for your game, but it's like a, kind of a weird thing you don't I, I don't know if i would be like okay with that if you it's just a weird it's a weird thing to be like somebody else is gonna gonna put this out there and you don't uh, did you like have approvals on it did you like kind of yeah, feedback so, on it how did that work so it was super interesting actually um so basically we've always been super pro modding uh been like we've done everything we could to encourage modders um because we're like well i think it's only going to help us and i think it has basically only helped us it's like created lots of community engagement you get lots of like free media and like youtubers and streamers engaging with all those mods and like oh look at this cool new mod to play and then like it you know it kind of has these positive feedback loops and then because of that you know we, we had a we had like a thriving part of our discord for modders and 
they would they would like meet up in there and work on like big community like year long mod events and stuff and and they would just collaborate with each other and they started working on downfall um and i don't i i'm not 100% sure on this but it was either they reached out to valve or valve reached out to us i want and they, and they were like hey what do you think about this uh, and we said, sure, why not? So, because they have to, they have to own Slay the Spire to, to get downfall. And, um, and we were like, you know what? This is okay. We, we, we can, we can do with this. This will just be like a value add to our players. We're very big on like supporting the community. And downfall has only increased sales. <laughs> so yeah. it was like a sale bump for free. Like, I didn't do any work. Like, yeah, you so know, you literally was, didn't, you didn't, you didn't like give them feedback on the game. You didn't dev it. You didn't do it. You just like, whatever fans made this, they want to release it for free. That's yeah. cool. And I was like, will... this is cool. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And then I, I, the most I did is I think I streamed on Twitch, me playing through it. So, mm. um, which is like a fun thing because occasionally like we'll go on Twitch and maybe I'll like stream some mods or something. But, yeah. um, um, but yeah, it, for, like I be- did basically no work on this at yeah. all. Um, and it's just kind of cool. Uh, for, from my perspective, I'm like totally cool with it, but I can totally understand being one to be like, no, you know, this is like RIP. Like this is like very important, but, uh, again, it, it did give us sales. So like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things where it's like, there's these, inter- I mean, it's, yeah, it is, as you said, it's just a value add to your, to your customer and to the players that are, and it's, it's such a, how cool must it be to just like have fans that care so much and love this so much that they're willing to put in. I mean, cause I played it. It's like, you know, it's a lot of work that went into this thing. It's like pretty amazing. Yeah, the the word the word I always use to describe kind of like the position that we ended up in is surreal because it's just like it, it's it's like incredibly strange to just be like, oh yeah, I just worked on this thing and now it like has taken on this huge like life of its own. It's become an entire like big like you know like IP and community and like everyone knows about it and I it, it's just it's just very bizarre. But yeah, uh, it's, it's cool. So I am. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know. It, it is surreal. That That is the best word for it. So, yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I mean, it's 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 a great it's a great success story. It's great to be able to recognize it. And and, and that's why I like to dig into the to the backgrounds and the hard work that gets you to here. And then and, and even the sort of interesting counterintuitive decisions like 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 this one, right? Most game companies would not allow this sort of thing to happen. Um, and so the fact that it has worked out for you, I mean, I remember we could take us back into the Wayback machine now, because like I, you know, when I, I, I released Ascension and then we were going to make an app for it and we we're going to sell the uh-huh. app for four ninety nine. I was terrified because I sell the base game for thirty nine ninety nine. Who the hell's ever going to buy the game when they could buy it for four ninety nine? That's crazy. And then, you know, we release the app and of course, like sales, of the physical game shoot up and then we eventually make the app free because it's just better that way. And, you know, it's like, uh, so, so the, there's a lot of interesting counterintuitive, uh, truths that end up, you know, you just get your game out there. You make, have a great game, get it in people's hands and it's going to work out. Yeah. I, I will say it, it is amazing to me. The number of people that tell me, 
oh, I have bought your game like three or four times across like every different platform. And it's just like, oh my God, like that's crazy. <laughs> like I never yep. do that with games. <laughs> yeah. No, I bought, so. I bought it. I bought it. I bought it twice. I did. I, I was like, I had, I said, I played the 400 plus hours on Steam and then I was going on a trip somewhere and realized it was on uh, on iOS, whatever, downloaded on my iPad and played on the flight. So you even got nice. more than that number of hours for me. So it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It's just, a, it's really well done. I have I have even more crazy ideas, which I don't think I'm going to share on the podcast, but I'll share with you after about things I would oh, do cool. with this genre going forward, which I think would be really cool. Um, uh, but uh, this is one that I think is a it's a big it's a big project. Uh, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 chat about it offline. And I'll tease I'll tease the audience about it for now. But um, great, man. Well, we we covered most of the things that I wanted to make sure to cover. Um, does anything else? Uh, come to mind um, either as topic to discuss or things you want to point people to. I know your new project still a secret, but uh, where you know where should people go, or is there any other uh, to to find things about you, or is there anything that would be cool uh, to to chat about before we run out of time? Um, let's see. I, we have megacrit dot com. We're at megacrit on Twitter. Uh, we're, recently, we've been putting out like new merch, and um, we recently did a board game Kickstarter that went well. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Follow, follow all the places we will we will post or we will when we make an announcement uh it will definitely be on twitter and all of the socials and everything so i forgot about the tabletop game so yeah let's 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 use let's use a few minutes on that so like um talk to me about the process of making the the tabletop game okay so for the tabletop game to be clear i am not the the key designer basically the story of how this came about is um, somebody reached out to us. This is Gary. He's the, the board game designer. And he like shipped me a physical prototype of the Slay the Spire board game. So he said, Hey, I've been working on this. Um, you know, can we do this? And I played it with my friends and we had fun with it. And so I talked with him and we, we worked it out together and, you know, he's in charge of it. I provided feedback on it. Um, like downfall, I did did a bunch of playtesting, gave him a bunch of feedback. I've been involved in the process, but he has been the one who has kind of been guiding and doing everything and ran the Kickstarter um, and has been making it happen. So, uh, which so this is another interesting thing where it was like because I could have easily done it, you know, well, not easily, but you know what I mean. Like yeah, I have the it's in your wheelhouse, <laughs> yeah. But it was just like, well, you know, I'm busy with other things. I feel like doing all of that would be a lot of work. Like Kickstarters, I don't really want to run a Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, they're a lot of work. They're a lot of work. Yeah. So and uh, but you know, uh, Gary made it happen. But but it's kind of interesting because basically, if he had not taken the risk to like actually reach out. And he, you know, he did a bunch of work beforehand. He had something that he thought was like engaging and he actually mailed it to me. <laughs> and, and I, I say, Hey, I'm going to try this. Like, this is cool. Like I had a bunch of, bunch of proxy bits, you know, that he had assembled together and, uh, made it work. But, uh, it was just his, um, his initiative made it happen, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, that's a great, yeah. So I'm glad we uncovered that because it's just, I mean, just think about the lessons for the people that are listening out here, right? They've got their favorite games. They've got those ideas, like somebody that's willing to put in the work and just reach out and make something like that happen. That's a, it's an incredible success story. Maybe I'll, 
feel like I don't want to have every podcast be about Slay the Spire uh, at this point, but uh, maybe it's worth uh, having him on uh, in the future at some point uh, to hear the story from his side. Just like follow the journey along for every design that touches this project. I haven't done this this format before. I just thought it was really interesting because I I really enjoyed um, talking to Casey and uh, I knew uh, from that I would enjoy talking to you. And it turns out I was right. So, uh, so far, so good. Um, but uh, I really do. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, and for contributing to to the genre the way you have. And I'm eager to. Uh, well, one, I'll get uh, we'll, we'll, I'll get you I'll get you a copy of my game. And uh, when the time's right, I'm looking forward to playing your next one. Awesome! Thanks. Pleasure. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews, along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry, and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.